morning in our look at the sermon letter to the Hebrews. If you have your Bible with you, uh, turn to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews 9. If you're using the Bible under the seat in front of you, you can find that uh, on page 1281. As we've been looking at this central section of Hebrews over the last several weeks, we have seen the author carefully address, lay out an argument against the central national identity markers of the Hebrew people. The priesthood, the covenant, and this morning as we'll see, the temple and the sacrificial system as a whole. In each, the author has an eye to showing that Jesus is greater than each of them, and in fact is the fulfillment of the reality underneath them, the fulfillment of all of our hopes. As always, when we open God's Word together, we need the Holy Spirit to teach us His truth, to restrain our sin, to lead us to righteousness. So if you're able now, please stand while I pray. Remain standing as I read from Hebrews chapter 9. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, we come to your word because only in your word do we get a clear, unobscured picture of your holiness, of your character, of your truth. And yet, Lord, our sin hastens to obscure what you have made clear. So, Lord, we beg you, give us your spirit. Be present among us today. Open our eyes that we would see clearly. Soften our hearts that we would repent and believe, that we would trust your word and your truth within your word. Give us grace that we would live this out in faithfulness to your glory alone. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, I'm reading from Romans, or excuse me, Romans, Hebrews chapter 9, uh, starting at the beginning of the chapter. This is God's word. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent, or tabernacle, was prepared, the first section in which the, were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section, or a second tent, called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties, but into the second section only the high priest goes, and he but once a year and not without the taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic of the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. But... When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, then he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more 
for the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. This is the word of the Lord. Grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Be seated. The law of unintended consequences has not been repealed, as far as I know, anyway. Everything we do, even if it's good, even if it accomplishes what we aim for it to accomplish, will also have effects that we haven't foreseen, and sometimes will have effects that we couldn't have foreseen. A few years ago, there was a commercial on TV. I think it was probably for an insurance company, but it doesn't really matter what it was for. The song, as, it, as the commercial goes on, the song, I'm Only Human, is playing in the background while we watch scenes of people's stuff getting destroyed. One man is trimming a tree branch, and then accidentally the tree branch, as he's cutting it, it falls and lands on his neighbor's car, completely crushing it. Another woman opens her car door and then leans over into the passenger seat to grab her purse, and while she's leaned over, another car plows through and takes the door clean off. On and on, accidental destruction of all sorts of things. Of course, they would like for all of this to lead you to buy their insurance or their repair service or you know, whatever it was they were trying to sell. But along the way, this commercial hit on something true. It is part of the experience of being human, specifically part of being human under the curse, that we break things. The law of unintended consequences is still in force. Now, sometimes when we break things, it truly is an accident, purely an unintended consequence of our action, something that we didn't intend at all. The fact that we didn't intend to break things doesn't make it less our fault when it happens, which I think was probably the point of the commercial, but at least it's understandable, right? You know, you make a mistake and you screwed up your calculations, you measured once and cut twice and, you know, stuff happens. It's understandable. We get that. Other times, though, the breakage, the damage is not an accident. And more often than not, those times are going to make the evening news when it wasn't an accident, as, as we saw this week. And it's awful when it happens. But I think more often than not, even when the damage is intentional, for most people, most of the times, we break things in the course of trying to make them better. Thinking that we're doing something helpful. helpful. Even the most tragic and evil of situations, the perpetrator has to convince himself that what he's doing is actually for the greater good. That however tragic and awful and evil this is, it's going to accomplish something better. Now, we may radically disagree with him about that. He has to convince himself that he's doing something for the greater good. Now, for most normal situations in our lives, we're trying to do something good only to have it just blow up in our face, right? Trying to do something actually good that just fails. Let me give you an example. When I was 12 or 13, maybe an early teen, uh, we were living in a house that had, we had kind of on our, our side fence there, we had a whole row of these bushes that were, had gotten leggy and long and, you know, kind of had some yellow flowers on them, but just kind of looked unkempt, you know? And so I, thinking that I was going to be helpful, I went out and mowed the lawn, and then I got the, the trimmers, and I went and I cleaned the bushes up, got them all nice and neat and perfectly in line. It, it looked great. 
I was trying to be helpful, trying to make things look nice. But that was, of course, the exact wrong thing to do with Forsythia. If you're not familiar, Forsythia is supposed to look long and leggy. It's supposed to have these kind of unkempt look to it with these lots of flowers because if you trim all of that mess off, if you get it looking neat and, you know, ruler straight, the butterflies don't come because the flowers aren't there, and it really just looks like brown. It's no longer attractive. I was trying to do something helpful. I was trying to neaten the hedgerow up, but I made it dramatically worse in so doing. made things much worse than they were when I started. We're th- this morning, we're still, as I said, we're looking in the central section of Hebrews, both in terms of raw length, obviously we're kind of in the middle of the book, but also uh, in the, the themes, the, the thematic approach and kind of the argument that the author is making. Throughout this whole book, the author is showing how Jesus is superior to every possible alternative, but giving special attention, particular attention to the forms of worship and interaction with the Lord that had grown up through and around the Mosaic Covenant. That is, what would have common in his day amongst the Jewish people, the Hebrew people. There is something fundamental to human nature that desires a relationship with God. And just as fundamental to our natures is the reality that what we desire, we pursue. All good so far, right? Those are good things. Where things tend to go wrong in this world is that we pursue God like I did pursuing those, that, those bushes and that yard work as a teenager. Whatever seems good to me, whatever seems to me personally like it will bring me closer to God, however I conceive of Him, that's what I do and call it my spiritual walk. But just like my choice to trim the forsythia like it was a privet hedge didn't actually accomplish the goal of pleasing my parents, so also pursuing God in whatever way seems right to us just doesn't work. It ignores the reality of who God is, of His personhood, of His kingship. It makes Him little more than a puppet to dance for us or a wax figurine that we can shape however we want. It makes him a bucket into which we pour whatever ideas about divinity or deity or righteousness seem pleasing to us without regard for any actual truth. And y'all, lest we think that this is just those people out there making God in their own image, the people of God do this too. This is what we mean when we talk about idols. It is easy to think that it was just the pagans in the bad old days or the savages in the jungle that worship idols because we don't make little wooden statues or little stone statues that we keep in our houses, right? At least I I really hope you don't. Please tell me you don't. Um, It is easy to think that our worship is guaranteed to be right and pleasing to the Lord because we don't build shrines or temples or tabernacles or, you know, whatever. But when we worship a God of our own creation, we are no less idolaters than if we'd carved a little statue and bowed down to it. 
when the God we worship looks little or nothing like the God that we see in Scripture, even if that God looks like some aspects of the, the God of Scripture, but not all of the aspects of the God of Scripture, when we create a God like that that just picks and chooses pieces of Scripture to include and ignores other parts of who He's revealed Himself to be, when we find ourselves saying things like, I could never worship a God who fill in the blank. When we say things like that, when we do things like that, we prove that we are creating a God for ourselves out of our own mind after our own image, in our likeness, not worshiping the true God. As I said, this in this central section of Hebrews, the author is looking particularly at the Mosaic Covenant as it was understood in the first century. The beliefs and the practices of the Hebrew people of that day. And, as, and his point is to show systematically how Jesus is superior to all that has come before him. In fact, the fulfillment of everything promised in the Old Testament, that the Old Testament worship was supposed to be a signpost pointing toward the coming Messiah, preparing God's people to see and to accept the Christ when he came. But instead, the people of God made an idol out of the signpost. They saw the sign that pointed toward Jesus and said, said, the Messiah, this way. And they said, this tells us about the Messiah. Let's worship that, this. Let's pretend this is the whole of the message. The people of God had come to believe that the sacrificial system instituted through Moses was able in and of itself to bring about their salvation. God set it up as a means to point to the necessity of a Savior, of a better sacrifice, to the need for blood to be shed to cover sins. <coughs> Excuse me. In the meanwhile, he graciously overlooked the sin of his people until that better sacrifice would come to bring true propitiation. God's people fell into a logical fallacy that is uh, known in arguments and whatever by its Latin name, post hoc ergo propter hoc, or after it, therefore because of it. They saw that God had set up the sacrificial system, and when they participated in it, God didn't destroy them. So they thought the not destroying part came about because of the sacrificing part. Obviously, this came after it, therefore it's because of it. It's an understandable mistake, right? After all, in every culture around them in the ancient Near East had a religion that worked exactly in that way. Though the the details varied from one nation to another, every surrounding culture, every surrounding culture taught that you must placate your God by your sacrifices. The more you gave, the more you sacrificed, the more likely it was that the God would find you acceptable and would give you something good, would bless you. But whether it was the influence of their neighbors or their own need to control God or both or something else entirely, God's people had come to believe that the sacrificial system in itself was effective to cover their sin, effective to placate God's justice. And then Jesus came along. 
and tipped the apple cart on its side, reminding the people that the true purpose of the sacrificial system was not to cover sin, but to point forward to the need for a covering, the need for a sacrifice, a true propitiation, a making right. And then he fulfilled that need by the sacrifice of himself, by his own death and resurrection. But a lifetime of thinking one way is difficult to shake off quickly. And all the more when the pattern of thought that has been your pattern for the lifetime is actually a thousand years or more old. That it's not just your pattern of thinking and your pattern of approach to the Lord, but it's your parents and their parents and their parents and their parents back 20 20 or 30 generations. There's a huge freight of inertia that makes it difficult to shift gears. Those who had been raised in that system felt the pull of returning to it. And the longer it took for Christ to return, the longer he tarried, and the more there was persecution ramping up because of their faith in Christ, the more they wondered if maybe they had believed a lie. Maybe they should return to the Levitical sacrificial system. So the author's covering all of the major points of that system, showing how those individual things are insufficient in themselves and together as a whole, that they are fulfilled perfectly only in Christ. He talks about the priests and the priesthood in chapter 7, the covenant with Moses in chapter 8. This week we're touching on the, the temple and the sacrifices that were performed there And the author shows that under the Mosaic system, there could be only a restricted access to the Lord because the Levitical sacrifices provided at best, the Levitical sacrifices provided partial cleansing, limited pardon. Verse 10, they deal only with food and drink and various washings, right? But the sacrifice of Christ provides, verse 12, eternal Redemption, full cleansing, complete pardon, which gives us unlimited access to the Lord. The new covenant is greater than the old covenant in every respect. First, though, he he specifically shows the inadequacy of the Mosaic covenant as they understood it. And again, they had misunderstood it, but as they understood it, describing the practices and the setup of Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the highest holy day of the year. The tabernacle and after it the temple was arranged so that there were two, well, three, but really two areas within it. The the outermost was not really part of the tabernacle proper. It was where the non-priests gathered to give the priests the sacrificial animals. Uh, And then you go into the first section, which was the holy place, where only the priests were allowed. Uh, This Almost all of the actual sacrificing was done where the worship happened, as it were. Um, And the author describes the furniture here in just kind of a real quick allusion to what the priests would have done in the area. This was a group, of course, very familiar with the practices of uh, temple worship in in those days. Uh, And so a simple rundown of the furniture in that room was sufficient to remind them of what's going on. In the same way that when we're talking about an election, we can say, at the ballot box referring to the piece of furniture, and you understand everything that goes with the furniture because you're familiar with that process, right? It's the same structure, uh, mental structure here. 
um, we get that idea. So the holy place where only the priest could go. But then inside the holy place, there was almost a second tent set up within it. It was the most holy place, sometimes called the Holy of Holies, where the throne of God, the mercy seat, was located. And into the Holy of Holies, only the high priest could go, and only once a year, and only great preparation. And even then, y'all, he went in with bells on his ankles and a rope around his waist because if he hadn't done it properly and God struck him down, they needed to be able to get his body out without somebody else having to go in. The holiness of God is a serious thing. The presence of the Lord was severely restricted. One person, once a year, and make sure you've offered all the correct sacrifices in exactly the correct way. The holiness of God is not to be trifled with. The reason the access was so restricted was that the sacrifices were not truly effective. Verse 6, the priests go regularly to the first section. This is a reminder of what the author here has talked about a couple of chapters before in chapter 7, that the priests had to offer sacrifices continually because they simply weren't effective to actually cleanse from sin. Even the highest of sacrifices, one day a year, the high priest was able to enter God's presence. Even then, it can only happen after this complex series of offerings and sacrifices to cover his sin and the sin of the people he represented. And even then, even then, the Lord had to choose to be merciful despite those ineffectual sacrifices. The blood of goats and bulls and sheep could not cleanse the sin of people made in God's image. The pardon secured in all those innumerable sacrifices was not secured by the sacrifices, but was granted wholly by the grace and mercy of God. Such sacrifice, costly though it was, did not purchase pardon at all. It merely served to point to the true sacrifice that was necessary. Look at verses 9 and 10. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect conscience of the worshiper, but only deal with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. Restricted access, partial cleansing, pardon that was limited in effect as well as in scope. The old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, could not save then and it cannot save now. You cannot be saved by your keeping of a whole list of rules and stipulations and sacrifices and whatever else. This is the, here's the thing. If the sacrificial system that God himself put in place could not save his people, how much less can the plans that you and I craft appease God's righteous anger? How much less? We long to know God. We long to be at peace with him, but we want to accomplish that reconciliation in our own way. It's the same old sin, the same old way, isn't it? Adam and Eve didn't like God's plan. They wanted to try their own. In the same way, we create the same old tired system of I'll do X, Y, and Z for you, and then you'll be forced to bless me. God, I'll do this for you. I'll give up that, and then you'll be obligated to give me what I want. 
I'll give up this kind of movie or that kind of beverage. I'll give up spending time around that sort of person. I'll read your words sometimes, and I'll show up in church so that my kids will hear about you. That way, you will have to bless me. Most of us don't actually think this all the way through, right? We don't, we're not as blunt as that in our thinking. But this kind of bargaining is how we often approach the Lord. I'll do this or give up that or both, and then you'll be obligated to give me this thing that I want. Gimme, gimme, gimme. By the way, my name is Jimmy. We're trying to buy off God. And when we try it, we reveal that we don't really believe that God is actually holy. By our actions, we show that we believe that He is basically just like us, able to be bribed and bought. And frankly, that He's an idiot because we're trying to bribe Him and buy Him off with the absolute least possible that we could do. We give Him the worst thing that we can come up with that's going to cost us the least and think, okay, good, I've given you this thing, now you've got to give me exactly what I want always. At least the Old Testament sacrificial system was originally put in place by God Himself. The the Israelites misunderstood it, they misapplied it, they misused it, but at least it started as God's system. The bargains that we try to make with God are nothing more or less than our sin dressed up in its Sunday best. But putting a tuxedo on a slug doesn't make it less a slug. Doesn't make it polite dinner company. My sin of bargaining with God will never absolve me of my sin. Sin cannot, cannot cast out sin. Sin cannot cast out sin. Only God can do that. And yet, there was always a plan in place for a sacrifice that would be effective. God told Adam and Eve about it the very day that it became necessary. The serpent will bruise the heel of the sun, yet the sun would crush the head of the serpent. The death of the sun, temporary though it proved to be, would bring about the permanent death of sin. As one fairly well-known Puritan author put it, the death of death in the death of the sun. The sacrifices of the Mosaic Covenant were never intended to be more than a signpost pointing to the true sacrifice. They couldn't provide more than a, at most, temporary limited pardon. The next best thing to no access to God at all. But The sacrifice that they point toward, the death of the Son of God in place of sinful people like you and like me, the sac- that sacrifice is able to bring full atonement. It actually accomplishes the justification of those whom God has chosen. It doesn't merely make it possible if we do thus and such or believe the right things. It actually brings about our salvation. Verse 12, it secures an eternal redemption. It doesn't make it possible. It does it. As an aside, if you're at all familiar with Reformed theology, you've probably heard of limited atonement referring to the work of Christ. And that term can confusing, right? Because, um, you know, I've mentioned several times the Mosaic Covenant was limited while the death of Christ accomplished complete pardon. So what do I mean? Why, Why is the atonement of Christ limited in some way? What are we talking about? When I say the Mosaic Covenant was limited, what I'm saying is that it was limited in scope and limited in effect. That is, 
It could only cleanse those who participated, limited in scope, and it could only, even at its best, it could only cleanse a little tiny bit, but not fully, limited in effect. So only some people and only a little bit, limited in scope and effect. On the other hand, when we talk about the limited atonement of Christ, what we're saying is that while it was limited in scope, it only applies to those the Father has chosen from before time began, it is not limited in effect. It fully accomplishes salvation of those whom God had chosen. There is nothing more for you to do. It is done. Put the same thing another way. The death of Christ actually accomplished redemption, but specifically for those God chose to apply it to, not for human being who ever lived. That's for free. That's kind of an aside. If you want to talk some more about that afterwards, I'm happy to, but I don't want to get too deep in that. Christ secures an eternal redemption for his people by means of his own blood shed on the cross. For the audience of this letter, this truth would be at the same time terrifying and wonderful. Terrifying because it revealed that they had completely misunderstood the sacrificial system that they'd been using for generations. Wonderful because Christ's one sacrifice had accomplished what thousands and thousands of years of sacrificing animals couldn't. They could now know that they, they could know, and we can know that we are right with God. Where under the old covenant, there was this constant watchfulness necessary to avoid becoming unclean. Now we are fully cleansed. For us, this can be a little harder. Our culture has enshrined deal-making and individuality. Everything is negotiable. Everything has a price. Everything can be bought. And what's more, there's no such thing as a free lunch. If someone offers you something for free, then they must have some angle, some way they're taking advantage of you and going to get something from you. Some way they're trying to rip you off. And when you deal with people, the only way to survive is be a better deal maker. Be shrewder. Be crueler. Undercut them before they have the chance to undercut you. Do whatever it takes to get yourself ahead. Now, obviously, I'm overstating a little bit for effect, uh, but this is the root of our understanding as a culture of how the world works. And then we turn around and we treat God the same way, thinking that he is just like us. But let's be blunt. You have no bargaining chips with God. You cannot do anything to earn his favor, not even a little bit. You are utterly incapable of negotiating with God to adjust the deal in any way, shape, or form. You can accept the terms or reject the terms. That's your only option. The essence of the sacrifice of Christ is unlike anything in any culture, anywhere, ever. It is truly unique. God doesn't let us adjust the deal because any adjustment we made would break it. We would be trying to make it better and, in fact, destroying it in the process. One of those things like my, me trimming the forsythia seemed like a good idea at the time. It was not. Any change, no matter well, how well-intentioned, would be making things worse. The beauty of the new covenant written in Christ's blood is that you can't 
change it because it is already perfect. It perfectly cleanses us. It perfectly justifies us. It perfectly makes us holy in God's sight. It's perfect. Ain't any room for you to add anything to it. As has been said before, the only thing you bring to your salvation is the sin that makes it necessary. Praise God that not only did he provide signposts throughout the Old Testament and in the Mosaic Covenant, but he also provided the fullness of redemption, eternal, secure redemption in the work of Christ. Christians, stop trying to negotiate with God. Stop trying to earn a better deal. It ain't going to work. Simply receive the gift that it is. And as you receive it, receive it, be made right eternally. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your salvation of us, your complete, perfect, total redemption of a people for yourself. We pray, Lord, that we would live that out, that as we rest in your completed work that you would change us change our hearts change our minds change our actions that we that we would be more and more like you that we would pursue holiness as a response to the great salvation that you purchased for us that you would make us pleasing servants in your in your sight May your name be praised in all that we do, Lord. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.